In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we're told that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But having said that, the chapter breaks and verse numbers that are in our Bibles are man-made additions to the Word of God. And it would seem that verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 really belong with the verses of chapter 1. I mean, day 7 follows day 6. And it, it ties up verse 1 of chapter 1 very nicely that says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 2 basically restates verse 1 of chapter 1, just in reverse order. But this is one occasion that the men who added those chapter breaks and verse numbers actually got it right. Because day seven is meant to be separated from the creation account, even though it is the end of the retelling of the creation account that's given to us in chapter one. And just for clarity's sake, I want to reiterate that verse one of chapter one is the telling of the creation week, that all the rest of chapter 1 is nothing more than a retelling of the creation week, with verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 being the conclusion of it. So you're asking yourself, why then should the seventh day be separated from the first six days? And this is the question that I'm going to pose to you today. And the answer that I'm desiring that you to see is contained within the first three verses of chapter 2. Now, just to begin with, I want to make sure that you guys understand that we are not going to get through all of chapter 2 today. For the simple reason that we need to understand verses 1 through 3 of this chapter in light of the creation week that's outlined in chapter 1. You see, there's aspects of the first days of the creation week that must be seen in light of day seven. And day seven must be viewed alongside of those days of the creation week. And we're going to focus in specifically on day two, on day six, and, they then, and then day seven of the creation week. So here are those first three verses of chapter two of Genesis one again. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, because he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The thing that I want you to understand, that I want you, as we're reading those three verses, what I want you to understand is that all was complete. Everything was created. Everything that God intended to be was. But the one thing that we don't find in these three verses is the statement that is found in all, all the verses concerning the first six days except one. In Genesis 1-4 we're told, and God saw that the light was good, day one. In Genesis 1.10, and God saw that it was good, day 3. Genesis 1.17, and God saw that it was good, day 4. Genesis 1.21, and God saw that it was good, day 5. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it, it was very good, day 6. So why did God not say of day 7 and day 2 that they were good? Well, day 7 may not be declared good. But in verse 3 of chapter 2, we're told God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The blessing of day 7 in verse 3 is the seal by God, for God, concerning the creation of God. He was able to stand back, look at everything that he had created, exactly as it was at that moment, and say, yes, this is exactly what I intended. And this is the best way for me to be glorified. Again, everything was completed. 
exactly as God intended it to be. And to reiterate the basic understanding of all of this, God created everything for the glory of God, not for the glory of man. Man was not the primary focus of the creation of all that is. God is. That's why all of creation is so complex, so amazingly intricate in its function and beauty. That's why when you magnify the universe to the greatest extent that humans can, there you will see the hand of God. And when you magnify the universe down to the furthest that humans can, there you will see the hand of God as well. Because all creation is for God. God created it for his glory. And God is not a glory hound. He's not a braggart. He's not seeking praise and acclamation because he thinks that he's all that. It's just that he's so good, to use a human term, that he understands that when he is glorified, he's magnified. And this is why at the end of the age, those created beings in heaven shout, Worthy of you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 4.11. And I said last week that if you get Genesis 1.1 right, the why of it, the how of it, and the who of it, then you will get all of life right. And this includes the point I'm going to make concerning Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. But before I, wanna, before I can go on, though, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page concerning this. So let me ask you once again, why did God create instead of not creating? Who was it for? Was it because he was lonely? Because he was bored? Was it for man? It's for God. It's for his glory alone. Again, you're going to be required to understand this fact, to hold on to this fact as we cover these verses today, because we're going to cover some territory today. Now back to day two, and then day seven. What makes these two days different? Well, some people surmise that on day two, there was really no creation that really happened, since what happened on day two was just a separation of the expanses. Well, let me read to you those verses for day two. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it, be se let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day, verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1. People will say, well, no creation really happened on day two. And for this reason, God just decided that he wasn't going to declare it good. That's why some people hold that God didn't declare day two good. But I would counter that it did seem that God did create on day two. He said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and that this expanse separated the waters under and over it. And then we're told that this expanse was called heaven. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And more clearly, in Exodus 20, verse 11, we're told, For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And the all in that Exodus verse, that does include everything that was ever created. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we read, For by him all things, in heaven and on earth were created things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. And the all in those verses include everything that was ever created. And for more specificity, God asked Job in chapter 38, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then in verse 4, in verse 7 of that chapter, he said this, 
when he asked him, where were you when I created everything? He said, where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So this is where the uncomfortableness comes in. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 11. There we read, Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, there is no theologian that will dispute the fact that the one that is being spoken of here is none other than Lucifer. And then in verse 13, we're told, you were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed cherub, a guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. So at some point in the creation week, and based upon those Job verses, before the foundation of the earth, God created the angels in heaven. And this was his plan from the beginning. And it all happened for his glory. He purposely created those beings that we refer to as angels. All of them. Including the three angels that we know by name. Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And at this point we have to ask ourselves another uncomfortable question. Did God knowingly create Lucifer? even though that he knew that he would betray him? Well, he goes on to speak of Lucifer in verse 15 of Ezekiel. He says, You were blameless in your ways from the days you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. But then something changed, verse 16 through 19. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought, you, brought fire out from, the midst, from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become to a, dread, a dreadful end and shall never be any more. In the creation week, did God know that this was going to happen? Or was this just an unavoidable side effect of creation? And, and, And where did Lucifer go? Where did he go? Well, in verse 16 of Ezekiel says that he was cast from the mountain of God. But where did he go? And what does this have to do with that second day of creation? Well, if you turn, grab your Bibles and turn back from the book of Ezekiel. A couple books. Book, turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 14. There, once again, we're told of this angel Lucifer. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. There we read. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to the Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Where does it say he fell from? Where did he say in his heart that he was going to ascend to you? heaven. And in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, we're told of the command of Jesus to the disciples to go out and proclaim the, proclaim the kingdom of God in chapter 10. And there we read, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Again, where did he fall from? And then Jesus clarified to those disciples the reason for all creation, beginning in verse 19. He said, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They... We are not supposed to think so highly of ourselves. We are to recognize that the thing that we should rejoice over is something that we can't do, something that we have no choice over, where our names are written, and who wrote our names there. And then we're told of the reaction of Jesus to the return of the disciples, their, him seeing their joy and being given his name and their names being written in heaven. Verse 21 and 22 of Luke 10 tells us, in that same hour, he, speaking of Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And on day one of creation, we're told that the earth was formless and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. And that light is Christ, as we're told in John 8, 12, and in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6, and as evidenced by Revelation 22, 5. And darkness is not real. It is only the absence of light. And for God, he can see that Whatever is in darkness, as told to us in Job chapter 12, verse 22, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 22. And day two, there is the creation of the heavens and the separation of the things below and the things above. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we're told, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and the host of all of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. So we know from Scripture that Lucifer was created along with all the rest of creation during this creation week. And that according to the creation week narrative, God separated light from darkness on day one, even before he created the very elements that mark and create days for us, those things that give us light. And then on day two, he created an expanse called heaven that separated the waters from the waters. And day three, he separated the land from the water. And day four, he separated the fish from the birds. Day five, he separated the animals. And on day six, he separated man from the animals. And we're never told of the creation of the heavenly host. But according to Ezekiel, it happened during this week. What else was created during this week that we're not told of in the creation narrative? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us of the end of the age and the destiny of all men. In chapter 25, you might want to grab your Bibles, turn forward now to the book of Matthew, chapter 25.
Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Did you catch when his kingdom, the one that was prepared for those that are of this king, when it was prepared? From the foundation of the world during this creation week. And then Jesus begins to speak of those that think that they are of him, but are not. He says of them, and beginning in verse 41 in Matthew 25, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Where are those outside of Christ sent? They're separated from the light that is Christ and sent into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And just in case you're thinking that this place that they were sent to wasn't created, at, at what seems the same time and in the same way that those that were of this king was created. Jesus ended this statement concerning the end of the age with this verse, verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment on his left, but the righteous in eternal life. Eternal punishment, eternal life. The thing that I'm desiring you to see, to understand, is that God created both the angels and man, specifically created Lucifer, specifically created Adam, and both of them were created perfect. And at the same time, the place of torment for those that are not perfect was created within this week as well. You Again, go back and read verse, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. All things were created. And when we understand this, that this is the case according to Scripture, then we will not fall into the humanistic thinking concerning God. The humanistic God that is presented today in most places. He's very sweet, very non-offensive especially to our high view of ourselves. He's that God that's like those pictures that you've seen of those fat cherubim, you know, those fat cherubim babies that are playing harps in heaven. He's like Mr. Rogers. Oh, or maybe like your favorite youth pastor that was always fun, always affirming of everything and anything you did, of anything you wore was always there to make you feel good about yourself. He's that God. And he's desperately trying to save any and all that he is begging, literally begging anyone to make the wise and right choice. Choose me. But if you don't, well, he's not going to like it. I mean, they basically forced him. He, he's going to send them to hell. Oh, not willingly. Not happily, but they forced his hand. I mean, he counted to three. He, he gave them multiple timeouts. And he literally was begging, pleading with them. He's just going to have to do it. Well, maybe. Because if you attend most funerals now, by those preachers that preach that God, they will tell you more often than not about that dead guy in that casket, that casket who never attended church, who lived like a hellion, who blasphemed the holy name of God every moment of their life, that since they walked an aisle when they were six years old, after an intense week of indoctrination and lots of sugar at a VBS, that they were forced to attend. Because of that single act, oh, they're in heaven with God. They're one of those fat cherubim playing a harp right alongside of that God. But this is not the God of the Bible. Not the God of the creation week. And unless and until we get this right, get this straight, you will not understand the importance of day seven in light of day six and in light of day two. Hear the reality of the God of creation. 
the God of the Bible. Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Isaiah 13, 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of his place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Exodus 15, 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Romans 5, 8 through 9. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the, la- from the wrath of God. Hebrews 10.31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Deuteronomy 7, 9 and 10. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him and he will repay him to his face. The thing that I want you to understand is that God is not a single dimension God, one that has to play by the rules of man. Those rules that say that he must be that he must act like we think that he should. Otherwise, he is not good. He's not God. The willful treason of Lucifer and the willful treason of Adam did not surprise God. And hell is not increasing in size every time that a human dies outside of Christ. And just as the names of those who belong to Christ are written into the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, as told to us in Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8, the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Adam, neither of them surprised him. We have to get it clear in our minds that he knew that they would not only fall, but that he planned for them to fall. To have a book called the Lamb's Book of Life, there has to be other books as well that contain the names of those that are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And as proof of this, we're given at a glimpse of the end game in, Ro- in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Let me read that to you. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the reality of God. And it was this God that did this, as we're told in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 31. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. 
and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. But what does it mean that he created us? He created us in his image. What does that mean? Well, Genesis chapter 5 begins the retelling of the account of this man that he created, the one that God created in his image there, verses 1 through 3. This is what the Genesis 5 says. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Again, reiteration of that. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And then when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and he named him Seth. And that language there is purposely used to let us know that the physical image that we have, this human form, is special. But it's just part of the image of God that is spoken of in the creation of man. And the New Testament confirms this and how we're to, confirms how we're supposed to think about the image of God and man being created as image. In James chapter 3, verse 9, we read, speaking of our tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Flesh and blood. 1 Corinthians eleven seven. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. And Genesis 9-6 clarifies at least part of what it means to be made in the image of God. There, long after the sin of Adam, because people will say that man is no longer is made and created in the image of God after the sin. Long after the sin of Adam, in Genesis 9-6 we read, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Even after killing ourselves, separating ourselves from God, through our sin, we humans still have value because we are made in the image of God. Even those who will never, this side of heaven, bow the knee, are created in the image of God, which is why murder, all murder, especially, perhaps, because of this, why abortion is worthy of not only earthly punishment, but also eternal punishment. And the fact is tested by those of the Revelation 20 verses that I just read. Tell us that all humans, every human, inside and outside of Christ, at the end of the age, in the new heavens, in the new earth, all of us will be resurrected to our eternal bodies. And this is further proof that for some reason, somehow, these avatars, these bodies that we have are important to God. But when we look to Christ, the second Adam, we see that he is demonstrated by the Bible Bible to be other than Adam. Of him alone, God says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, the body. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. And in Philippians, we're given an even greater indication of what being created in the image of God means. There we read, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, we're told in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
But to fully understand what being created in the image of God means, we have to understand the seventh day of creation. So let me read those verses to you once again. Verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the, se the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So what was it that made the seventh day holy? God did that. And why are we told that he made the seventh day holy? It wasn't so much the completed work of the creation week. It was the rest of God that was the reason for blessing the seventh day and making it holy. And we know this for a number of reasons. One being that it, the resting is repeated over and again. But more importantly, because in verse 3, the rest of God is the reason given for the seventh day and making it holy. The seventh day and the resting of God. You guys ever think about this? The seventh day and the resting of God is the only one, the only element of the whole creation week that makes it to the top ten of God. It's commandment number four. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. But what is the reason that is spoken of in Genesis 2. What is this rest? Is it just taking it easy? Is it not doing any ordinary work? Well, according to the fourth commandment given to us, it is that. But it's more than that as well. The rest of God is like the image of God. Creation, flesh and blood are part of it. Just as being created in the image of God contains the elements of being flesh and blood. But it's more than that as well. The spiritual aspect of the image of God is much more important than the physical side of it. And sinners, all sinners, every human is made in the image of God. And they will be cast in outer darkness, into the abyss, into that place that was prepared before the foundation of the world for Satan. Out of the heaven that was created on day two. And God specifically then tells us that those that he created on day six, he said to them in Exodus, Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. So to understand the rest of God that is being spoken of in the creation account, we have to turn to the book of Hebrews. Again, grab your Bible. We're going to go to the, hook, the book of Hebrews now. We are given a much better understanding of this rest of God in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews begins with the elevation of Jesus as being the exact imprint of the radiant glory of God, that he is preeminent over all creation. That's chapter 1. And we're admonished in the second chapter of Hebrews not to neglect such a great salvation as the one that can only come through this Christ, who was made a little lower than the angels for a while, in order that he could become as those with whom, for, with whom he was made propitiation for, those that they had sold themselves to sin and were slaves to the devil. That's chapter 2. And then in Hebrews 3, beginning there, verses 1 and 3, that author there takes us and this original audience back to the giving of the Ten Commandments, back to the Exodus, and then even back to the rest of God, verses 1 through 3. He says there, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted more worthy of more glory than Moses, 
as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. <clears throat> and then in verse 7 we read, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And hear the truth of the rest of God, that it's much more than just not doing. It's tied in with the truth of the image of God, that it is much more than just this physical body. And it was the Holy Spirit who said this. And he said this, he said that to the to flesh and blood, made in the image of God people. People just like those in the days of the testing of wilderness that were not able to enter the rest of God, even though they kept the Sabbath, even though they were very careful not to do any work on the seventh day. And then what was the admonishment of this pastor, this elder who wrote the book of Hebrews? He said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who, who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Verses 15 through 19. And then this author ties the rest that he's speaking about. The rest that God means us to understand as the same rest as that is Genesis chapter 2 with the rest that he's speaking about in Hebrews chapter 3. Turn with me to, to chapter 4 of Hebrews. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has also spoken on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. So what is the rest of God? What is it that we are supposed to be resting in? Well, verse 11 of Hebrews 4, we're admonished, therefore. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This seems pretty important. This seems like something that we should take notice of, that, that should actually matter to us. The author of Hebrews then tells us what this rest of God is, beginning in verse 12. You guys realize that verse 12 follows verse 11 and it's defined the, the finishing of that thought? Beginning in verse 12 of Hebrews 4, he tells us what the rest of God is. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. The rest of God is the word of God. So what's the word of God? It's the Bible. We say that this is the word of God, right? And it is. But is this his rest? Yes. No. The Bible, in its written translation, is the exact reality of the exact imprint the essence of the God and the rest of God. But just as the image of God contains elements of the physical aspect of humanity, 
but not the entirety of what it means to be created in the image of a God. So too the written word of God contains elements of the reality of God, but outside of the spiritual reality of God, it has no saving power in and of itself. And this is why the unconverted can read this Bible and come away unsaved. Why the unconverted can make this Bible their life and their life's work and still not have their names written in the book of life. Why they can, they can be destined to that place that was made before the foundation of the world for Satan and his angels. But we're given the answer in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything that was made. And in him was life. And in the light was the light of men. And light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. When you hear those opening verses of the Gospel of John, can you not see how they tie all this up together? The word was with God. The word is God. God created all things. The word is life. And the word is the light that shines in the darkness and which, which the darkness was separated from. And this word, this life, this light made this statement to those created in the image of God. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. And as you sit there, I have to ask you, are you weary and burdened in your sin? Does this eternal separation the one between you and God that you have brought about because of your sin, does this weigh heavy on your soul? Can you see that God is holy and that you're not of him? If this is you, if this is you, I have to tell you, if this is you, then the offer by Jesus to come is for you as well. But I have to warn you that you will never find rest outside of him. He will forever be on your mind, in your dreams. He will hound you like a bloodhound on a trail. You will never know peace. You will never have rest. You will never find contentment until you come to him. Your friends, others may find contentment in the things of this world. Others may find dis those distractions and delusions of drugs and sex and material wealth. They may actually fulfill them. But for you, this will never, you will never find rest. Perhaps for a while, they may be sweet in your mouth, but they will turn to bitterness very quickly. You will never find rest until and unless you come to him. So come to him. Acknowledge the truth that you know in your heart. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. He, he, he is the Word. He is the life. He's the light. He is God. And He is the just and the juster of, justifier of man. That one, that we who are of the redeemed need to get right. We need to get comfortable with the reality that he created all things, including hell. That he created hell during the creation week. He created the heavenly beings in the creation week. And he created man in his image in the creation week. And he is not for man. He's for God. So what are we, those that are redeemed, what are we supposed to do? Those that have been given the, the privilege of entering this rest, those that by no doing our own, that we have found our names written in the Lamb's book of life. What are we to do since we've been given such a great privilege of entering his rest? 
How do we enter the rest of God? Well, we do that which David in the Psalm 90 of Psalm 95 admonished us to do. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his. For he made it and his hands formed a dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. The rest of day seven is for those created on day six. Those that have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those that will dwell with God in that heaven that he created on day two. The Lamb's Book of Life written before the foundation of the world. The rest of God is truly and can only really be known because everything was created in that creation week. It's only in that that we can know that nothing happens by accident. And because of that, we know that there is nothing that's outside of his will and nothing will thwart or stop or alter his will. And because of this fact, in this crazy, mixed-up world, and all these things that come at us, we can rest in his rest. Let's pray.